So let me begin with a question, as I often like to begin my classes with. What is a teacher? I mean, I mean to say what comes to mind when I say the word teacher? Um, is it a person standing at the front of a class? Uh, is it someone who is a mentor to someone else? I, I mean, in the bigger context, what, what is a teacher to you? The role of a teacher can be taken on by pretty much anyone. Teaching is a social practice. It takes place in multiple contexts impacted by multiple variables, such as time, place, culture, socio-political, economic situations, and tons and tons more. It's therefore shaped by the values of that co specific context with which it's done. It could be done at a job or at play, come from a coworker, a friend, an aunt, or even an experience. I can think of a lot of experiences that have taught me my greatest lessons. One of the greatest teachers, in my opinion, is failure, uh, which is a topic that I hope to be focusing on in a future podcast. Uh, my three-year-old son is a great teacher. He loves to teach and tell everyone stories about everything that's happening on in his life. Maybe it's about a new dinosaur that he's learned about in his life. Um, or about the Transformers, which he recently became extremely obsessed with. If you wouldn't mind, I'd love to play you a sample because I uh, take every single moment I can to share my children's lives and record them and, and whatnot. Um, here's a little audio of my son talking to me about dinosaurs. Um, Trilodons are the smallest dinosaur. Really? Yeah. Yeah? And what else, what else is interesting about Troodons? They can hunt at night. Why? Because their visible eyes can see anything at dark. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And of um, Argentinosaurus Maximo. Is what? Is a biddle, a biggest dinosaur. Biggest dinosaur? Yeah. Yeah, what kind of dino was he? He has a young net dinosaur. Oh, yeah? Yeah. He, he can um, boom his tail really loud. He can boom his tail really loud? Yeah. Oh, yeah? What does he eat? Plants. Oh, yeah? And his tail like this, yeah. Oh, cool. After talking about dinosaurs, he quickly shifted to uh, Transformers and just kind of threw in some things of, that he, he loves about, about Transformers. And what really is on display in this moment is the excitement through which that he enjoys sharing the things that he knows about, what he's learned, uh, what excites him. And he wants to share that information with you. He wants to share that knowledge with you. Um, I think that that's the basic motivator of, of any teacher of any sort. Um, there's a lot of other forms teachers can take, such as maybe a pet. I'm sure many of you have learned meaningful lessons from a pet uh, in some way, shape, or form. I can think of a lot of stories, but the point, the major point is that we are all teachers in some way. In a nutshell, it's a person who helps others to acquire knowledge, competence, or virtue. So... Hey, teachers, what do you think about the current educational system? And when I say teachers, obviously, I'm speaking to all of you, whether or not you are a traditional teacher, if you're a parent, if you're a student, 
if you're somebody who's interested in education, if you're an education leader, I want to hear from everybody. Um, I want this to speak to everybody. Uh, in a moment, I'll get to some of the elements that make up the core lenses of this podcast, and all those things will become very important. So what do you think about the current educational system? Does it inspire you or depress you? Do you remember your traditional education experiences filling you with wonder and curiosity or boredom and dread? Do you feel comfortable sending your curious and excited children to school every day and feel that your own education prepared you for the world, your unique life, the current and future job market, and what it is you want to do to make yourself feel whole? Do you feel like a healthier, happier, wiser, and more fulfilled person after your traditional educational experiences? Or, hey, maybe you are one of the 10% of the students that the current traditional system works for. Still, how did the testing culture and overwhelming homework load work, uh, work out for you, your health, and your personal life in the long run? Or maybe you're one of the lucky few who have had the pleasure of attending a progressive 21st century school that's not just great on paper, but reaches deeper with a truly student-focused practice and meaningful rigor that allows you to develop as a person and not just as a student commodity. One of the things that started this, and I'll get to that in a moment, why I'm, why I'm doing this, uh, were, were student stories, things that students have shared with me over the years in the classroom. Um, one day, a student walked in and just unleashed an emotional and well-stated rant about the impacts of education. I'd like to play that rant for you right now. And to quickly set the scene, imagine um, you are a teacher, you're standing near the door as students are walking in. A number of students have already walked in. The bell has yet to ring. And uh, one student walks in, obviously frustrated, and begins to let loose this rant. The school system is overall super rigged and it, and it stresses students out unbelievably and it leads them to fail because we're assigned hours and hours worth of homework every night, which leads us to sleep not enough or get little to no sleep at all. And then when you don't sleep, you can't focus in school and you don't do your work and you fail all your tests and you don't get grades, so you stay up even later doing more homework and then you get less sleep, which leads to issues such as like mental illness and issues with friends and society in high school is just a checkbox and it doesn't get you anywhere because you can't take classes for the things you're actually interested in so you won't be skilled for the job careers and things that you actually want to pursue. Teachers have little consideration of your other classes. They'll assign you like six hours worth of homework for their class because maybe in the three-day weekend you'll have six hours for that one class but when you're assigned six hours worth of work in every single class it makes it absolutely impossible to get anything done and then instead of like doing poorly on one thing you're actually genuinely doing bad in every single class that you're taking. <laughs> And the ACT is rigged. It's all about timing. It has nothing to do with skill. If you had yes, hours, if you had time to do it yourself and take your time and actually think and plan and show your skills, everybody would do well. All it is is a test about how fast you can take a test and how easily you get bored. It doesn't teach or show anything. For starters, they'll have like three or four different periods for like a psych or a calculus class, but they'll have one class for a fashion class, and then you have to change your whole schedule because you can't take the classes you're actually interested in because the only thing that mm -hmm. you have time for are the classes you need to graduate that you're not going like, to use the second college. you graduate. I want to integrate a gym next year, like with the special ed kids, but I can't because I have a scheduling conflict with my math class. And, and it's like I wanted to do something with special ed, what's the point of 
being in pre-calc when I want to teach elementary school kids, possibly, you know? Yeah. Thanks to those students for providing that information, um, personal stories, emotions, thoughts and critiques on education. Um, I wish I could say that this was an isolated incident that only one student has ever come in and had these feelings, but it is pretty frequent. It happens daily, if, uh, if not more than daily, by, by multiple students. Um, I am an art teacher, so students tend to be a little bit more open and free and honest in my classroom environment, uh, which basically brings me to, in a nutshell, why did I start this podcast? Uh, a little bit of frustration, a bit of hope, mixed with excitement and eagerness for a better way. I just feel like I'm constantly fighting against an invisible and oftentimes very visible box that makes reaching each student nearly impossible, some of the things that that student just mentioned. The major motivator for this is the conversations I have with countless teachers and students across Illinois. I'll get to some of my uh, background and experiences that have allowed me to have those conversations. Um, the personal stories and perspectives they share, much like the student you just listened to, um, how so many things I've watched, listened to, or read throughout the years do a really great job identifying many of the issues with our educational systems and do a great job dreaming of a better way, but rarely do they actually share detailed solutions explained by people who understand education in a personal and academic nature. Solutions that account for the vast web that educational systems are intertwined in. Uh, for instance, How Schools Kill Creativity, uh, TED Talk by Sir Ken Robinson, is the number one or number two most watched TED Talk of all time, depending on who you're talking to. It tells a great story about the history of education and how it fails to meet the needs of students in the 21st century. If you're listening to a podcast about education, you've probably heard it, so I don't need to go into details. It came out over 12 years ago, and based on many measurements, you'd be hard-pressed to conclude schools or students are in any better of a situation today. The most-watched TED Talk picks apart education, says, do schools kill creativity? Basically proves that. Yes, it, yes they do. And yet, by most measures, school students are not in a better situation. I know more students are in debt, that's for sure. Uh, there are countless more podcasts similar to the, the one I'm making right now, and yet by some measures, many students are likely in worse environments today. And I can say uh, with great certainty that most people are saying the right things. Um, my educational career, the professors I've had, the teacher I, teachers I've talked to, administrators, parents, students, um, superintendents, they all feel that something is wrong. They all share that idea. They all talk a really great game. They say this is the way education should be. Um, not many people are saying standardization is an amazing thing and that we have the perfect education system. My problem is that even though pretty much everybody agrees, we're still here. So hopefully this podcast can become in some way, a solution to that problem. But before I get into the specifics, I would like to tell you a little bit about me. Um, what gives me the right to be sitting in my chair right now talking to you about education and uh, what I think is wrong with it and how I think I can fix it. I've been teaching visual art for about 
the past 10 years now. It started in an inner city Chicago school for a short time uh, before I started working in a working class suburban district just outside the city uh, before I started my tenure at an affluent suburban district uh, that is ranked one of the top public schools in Illinois. Um, I'm also the co-creator and assistant director of a nonprofit called the Illinois High School Art Exhibition. Um, you can find us at www.ihsae.org. Um, we were started and uh, managed by two teachers, uh, quickly three in early 2013, um, other passionate teachers eventually came aboard to help build a very far-reaching program that has impacted uh, about 150 high school visual art programs and over 1,200 students annually with demographics that bridge city, suburban, public, and private schools focused across the Chicagoland area and reaching throughout all of Illinois. Uh, the short description is that we utilize large-scale student exhibitions along with a growing network of college, career, and other nonprofit representatives as the catalyst to cultivate connections, programming, support, and scholarships that advance creativity and expose the beauty and technical mastery of student artwork. Some of that is taken from our mission statement. Our, our biggest claim to fame and biggest selling point is that since 2013, a group of teachers, as we are run by, donating their time to a worthy cause and program have facilitated over 190 million in tuition scholarships for students. Yes, uh, you heard that right, $190 million in tuition scholarships. We did this by forging connections that not only uh, didn't priorly exist for student artists, um, but many of these recipients include students from families who did not think college was a possibility for their family situation. It is one of my most proudest achievements, uh, one of the hardest things I've ever worked on also, and it has involved a, a lot of work, a lot of great, meaningful, difficult uh, work that has had some great outcomes. I have a few degrees to my name, which includes a master's in educational leadership, uh, with a principal endorsement. I'll go into my leadership philosophies in a later episode. Uh, preview, it's about people, my leadership philosophy. I have also served as a secretary and executive board member for the Illinois Art Education Association and as the advocacy task force chair, uh, a role that included doing a great deal of research and networking and organizing art advocacy initiatives to increase comprehensive art education experiences for students through connections with the Illinois State Board of Ed, uh, with Illinois uh, legislators, um, worked with the Association of School Boards and Administrators for whom I have presented with and had multiple conversations with their uh, membership, uh, and did a lot of coordinating with the Arts Alliance on recent uh, ESSA, the Every Student Succeeds Act initiatives uh, in Illinois, to name a few things. I have been lucky enough to visit Washington, D.C. to lobby for uh, NEA funding on numerous occasions and have met with countless legislators in the Illinois Capitol building. Uh, this work and the creation of a, a nonprofit that has worked with over 150 schools across Illinois has taught me a lot about education systems in the bigger picture and exposed me to the personal stories of teachers in a variety of situations, all of which have humbled me, but also caused me to feel vetted enough to speak to you today. Um, 
My education philosophy is about four pages long, so I'll try to give you the summary. It's uh, Essentially, it's my perspective that a school should be student-focused. I mean to say that students should drive their own educations, make decisions based on their own unique intelligences, and be a part of the assessment process, which should be circular between teacher and student back and forth. Um, standardization is probably the most destructive term, in my opinion, to education, or, or one of them. There's, there's a, another a few that I can think of. Socio-emotional development should be fundamental, in my opinion, especially in the early years and during the middle school ages into high school because of where they are and how they're developing, what their biology says, what their mental states say uh, about what they should be doing. Essentially, I believe that we should meet students where they are. Uh, schools should encourage civic engagement, promote social awareness, foster positive change in the world, and develop a progressive future of growth to serve its role in society. It's kind of my uh, mission and values on education. It's essentially a social constructivist approach to education, which simply rests on the principle that schools need to shape, innovate, or construct society in a way that strengthens democracy. Um, notice how I haven't mentioned information or sharing of knowledge yet as being core to my philosophy. Uh, make no mistake, I think that those things are important. L learning some facts about stuff is important, but they're no longer the goal of education. Uh, every single student has within the, their pockets of their pants all the information they could ever hope to have. As an art educator, curating society holds a lot of intrigue, and promoting empathetic social awareness skills in my students comes naturally. Themes of aesthetics, identity, individual intelligence, and the construct of meaning are all heavily rooted in my philosophies as well. Social constructivism is at the foundation of my philosophy because I view my work's ultimate goal as producing positively engaged, democratic, empathetic citizens. But I embrace most philosophies as offering insights on how to achieve that goal. Having only one perspective would limit my ability to interpret and adapt to a changing world. More specifically, I have led numerous community interdisciplinary-based uh, projects while advocating for STEAM curriculum uh, in, within school systems bridging intersections across disciplines, learner communities, and democratic policy. Now, I can tell you that things rarely work out the way that you plan them, based on a lot of the experiences I've had running a nonprofit, based on working with legislators, based on working with students or working in a school district. Everything I just sounds great on paper, but when you get down to it, things never quite go the way that we want them to. Um, there are a lot of quality frameworks within which to apply these ideals more concretely, and I hope to share what I use and connect to others throughout this pod. So what is the goal or goals of Hey Teachers? Essentially, my goal is to start a journey and organize my own thoughts on education in collaboration with a lot of people that are more talented than I am in order to share resources and concepts on how we can work together to innovate education. Given the complexity and vastness of the education problem, it is a daunting task. I haven't yet found a singular source to serve as a guide on such work. Um, maybe it's too much to ask. Maybe having it all in one place and in, in the form of a blueprint is not completely possible. Actually, I think that 
it would probably look more like a choose-your-own-adventure book um, where you get to fit in different decisions and, and paths based on the specific circumstances of your school or your learning environment. Regardless of how daunting the task of reforming, innovating, building new forms of education, whatever a term you want to use, the lives and development of our children demands more physical and real world effort here. Our society demands more effort. Our economy demands it. Education is the human civil rights issue of our time, in my opinion, and that is also while acknowledging that we haven't even remedied the ones of the past. The world is on the cusp of some huge breakthroughs. We're still in the digital revolution, of which virtual reality is likely to bring about a climax in the next few years, that we don't even know what that's going to do for the economy, for jobs, for social media. The bio and nano revolutions are not that far away, and we're still acting as though the industrial revolution is our future. We're still living in the past in terms of education. And I think you'd be hard pressed to argue against education being the foundation for what we build together as a society, to what we offer our students, our children, as opportunities for the world. There's essentially four main lenses that I would like to look at with regards to education. Uh, the first is that, and I mentioned it, everyone is talking a big game, but not a lot of action is falling behind it and not a lot of specifics is coming out of it. I hope to provide those specifics here throughout this journey. Um, this structure is set against student development and health, which is essentially like number one, um, that students first. This is about students. How, what do students need? How do they learn? Think back to listening to that student rant about how they feel about education. That's the, one of the main lenses I wanna look at. The third lens is creativity. Um, and I want that to take on a pretty prominent role throughout this, this conversation that we develop together. I think it's essential. Um, I think Sir Ken Robinson is onto something when, he's, when he talks about how schools kill creativity. And I think it's the number one thing we need to bring back into education in order to be successful. And it also connects to a lot of other things, such as collaboration, both of which, creativity and collaboration, are considered to be two of the top skills that any student can have when entering the workforce. And yet there are two skills, specifically creativity, that are rarely taught specifically. Uh, the fourth lens is uh, the parent, parents and general public perceptions slash involvement in education. Um, everybody knows the documentary uh, Waiting for Superman, which was basically about pointing the finger at teachers, which I think is healthy to uh, critique and point a, a healthy amount of, of focus at teachers. But um, the number one impact on what makes a student successful is their home life. Uh, and I can't, I just don't think any solutions that are going to solve the education crisis are gonna come without a heavy focus on parents, uh, the public's perception and the community. Many, many schools apply Band-Aids from time to time, but few have had the courage and creativity to change the paradigms that I'm kind of talk talking about with which most of our systems exist in. Maybe that's a result of fear uh, of change. Maybe that's a result of not 
understanding the different possible solutions that are in front of them or seeing the other paths that can be taken, both of which, in my opinion, are a lack of creativity in our education systems. Um, most people have grown up uh, through a lifetime without specifically learning about what creativity is, which has a lot to do with being able to see different possibilities for ourselves. It's extremely frustrating uh, for somebody who comes from a background riddled in, in creativity coming from the arts. And so that's, again, why I'm here talking to you now. Um, school success is tied to so many, many societal, economic, and personal factors, and each school community has a unique challenge that requires personalized solutions, uh, which, again, is a big part of, of creativity, is realizing the unique strengths that each person brings. Um, many diverse school communities across our country face unique challenges and should have unique goals in meeting those challenges. A fundamental aspect of improving education systems includes individualization, as I just mentioned, which supposes the answers are not going to be the same everywhere. Too many communities lack the basic resources they need to even be successful in the first place, and nothing short of a community investment plan will work to fix what's at the fundamental uh, point, breaking point, of what's happening for our students. Though much of what I want to talk about through this journey of this pod applies in some form across many variables and different domains of societal and student needs. Um, I've mentioned creativity a number of times as being one of my major four lenses, and I'd really like to briefly talk about how creativity is fundamental to me uh, in this, this engagement. Uh, my wife actually suggested I call this pod or a talk about creativity. Why do airplanes still look the same? Because the idea is that even after years and years of potential innovation, our airplanes are still essentially, they still look the same, are about the same speed, guzzle up fuel at exactly the same amounts, are terrible for the environment. And why? How is this possible uh, that in a, in a nation especially that has uh, in its past embraced innovation in such such alarming ways and how we've built so much in such a short period of time across other points of our history. Today, airplanes still look exactly the same and have the same issues that they used to have. And I say that knowing that there have been some improvements, but I, I like the analogy. Um, creativity is, a, is the number one job skill. At least it's in the, the top three, depending on who you're talking to. Um, another one being collaboration. Um, both of these things are, in my opinion, intertwined. Uh, and yet, we, if you talk to any students, uh, if you survey them, I've done this, ask them, how many of you have specifically learned about creativity in your educational experiences? The results I have gotten is about 10% of the students I see on day one have ever had any specific experience in learning about what creativity is and how to be creative. The 10%, it's usually coming from students that were in visual arts classes or different arts classes before coming to me, possibly in English class here and there. But the point is, it's the number one, one of the number one job skills, and yet none of our schools specifically teach it. None of our classes specifically teach it. I would argue that even many of our arts classes don't specifically teach creativity. Um, I believe, personally, that we have two major epidemics in education from a purely cognitive point of view, again, not economic. One is the creativity epidemic, and the other is emotional intelligence, uh, which I'll also touch on in a minute, because I think that the two are inexorably linked, just as creativity and collaboration are. 
But let me start by just telling you a story about a student. Years ago, I had a student tell me that he couldn't do a project because he wasn't creative enough. He said he didn't have the ability to be creative and he just couldn't do it. So I asked him, what, what do you think is creativity? What is, what is creativity? And he said, I don't know. And after a little pushing, he said, I guess it's imagination. To which I responded, of course, well, what is imagination? And he said, I don't know, it's creativity. And I've said, okay, so creativity is imagination and imagination is creativity. Where have we gotten in this conversation? Um, he said, I don't know. It, it's magic. It's that light bulb that pops up over your head. It doesn't happen for me. I don't know why, but some people have this magic light bulb that pops open, pops above their head, and it doesn't pop above my head. And at that point, I realized that every that a lot of students' fundamental interpretation of creativity was severely flawed. Um, they didn't really see it as this tangible, specific thought process that it actually is that could be learned and taught and that can be exercised and gotten better at. Um, most people I've come into contact with fail to understand this nature of creativity and its elemental connection with collaboration. There's a really great, great quote that I love to share, uh, and it is, creativity comes through you, but is not from you. And though it is with you, it does not belong to you. Um, this is actually an adaptation of Khalil Gibran's quote, and I took it from a video called Shots of Awe, uh, which is a really great resource on creativity that I will probably be sharing some tidbits from. And uh, there's a num number of other resources that I'd like to touch upon with regards to creativity. Another good one is uh, Everything is a Remix, which is a series of videos. If you Google Everything is a Remix, you'll find them. Uh, he has a webpage. Uh, Kirby Ferguson is the gentleman who put them together. And it basically takes the idea that, uh, again, everything has been done before us. And it pulls away this myth that creativity is a thing that belongs to you, that it only happens to you, that you are creative alone. It's actually a series of connections um, across different people, across different experiences that really define what creativity it is. And in within this uh, podcast, I really hope to kind of dig deep into the nature of creativity in, in, a, in a variety of different forms, again, because I feel that it is essential to what is wrong with education. Um, the human intellect was actualized, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago in a European cave uh, when we noticed cave markings with hands or paint, some form of mark making that basically identifies the birth of human creativity. Uh, it has been essential, an essential aspect of our learning since then, this ability to be creative. Actually, before we used a stick as a tool to pull out ants, it's likely that we used it as an instrument to bang on trees to make sounds or to draw in the sand. Uh, there's been some research that looked in, um, in, in anthropological studies that looked into our uh, fascination with okra in our early uh, evolution as a species. Um, and why was it so fundamental to our, our, our species survival? And what, what it looks like is, it looks like um, we started using red okra 
as a way to paint our faces or as a way to make marks on walls. And then through that experimentation and play, we learned, oh, when we put this on our faces, it can also be used as a sunblock. So the creative process of using something in a way that it's not normally supposed to be used led to a scientific discovery that helped us in a specific way regarding our health. And this is found throughout our evolution as, as a human species, and I, I would argue is fundamental to how we learn as a people. Going further with this, neuroscience has taught us that um, basically there is a separation between the input and output of your brain that a lot of other animals don't have. And the reason for that separation is because of the space between it. It allows different possibilities to happen within that space between your inputs and your outputs in your brain. So if you look at a mouse, its input and its output are right next to each other. It doesn't leave a lot of room for choice or accidents or different paths to formulate, different neural connections to happen between the input and output. But over time, uh, as our brains evolved, the input and the output spread apart, which allowed for the space, the space of creativity to happen. And that's another aspect I'd like to dive deep into with this, this podcast. And also, uh, we'll touch on aspects of design thinking about the uh, what I like to call the the circular processes of, of design thinking that you end a product by reflecting on it and then you go back to the start kind of speaks to natures of, of failure, of how in, important failure is to uh, creativity and, and education and learning to to uh, welcome failure as one of the best teachers that, that we have. We're going to talk a great deal about reflection and assessment, um, interdisciplinary, uh, approaches to learning, which I think is also fundamental um, and, and helpful uh, into breaking down the classroom wall structures, the boxes that we've built around all the content areas, uh, which is not a really natural way uh, to learn. It's not how people learn. It's not how three or my three-year-old learns. He doesn't learn in a box, one content at a time. It's all intermingled. Uh, and that's the way our brains like to connect things in a creative way, make connections across different neural networks that form new ways of thinking and, and uh, aha moments. Um, just a, a segue, I think that learning is one of the most amazing things that uh, can happen. I feel that I get an, a sense of awe when I learn something. It's like a sense of ecstasy to learn something new. I think that the human brain is wired to be to be, uh, you know, to crave that learning. And unfortunately, our traditional school systems kind of beat that out of our students, out of our children. And it's one of the reasons why I'm a little bit terrified to send my kids to a tr traditional school and why I'm doing this podcast mm -hmm. right now. Um, uh, I mentioned uh, SEL or uh, socio-emotional learning. Um, I think that that's intertwined to creativity in quite significant ways. Um, some, one specific thing that has alarmed me in recent, uh, in recent years, mainly this year, is that um, students aren't talking as much in classes, uh, and, and I feel that this is a result to, in, to a society that doesn't know how to disagree anymore, um, and I know that a lot of students have credited the, the pressure that they feel by their teachers or the fear of being judged as being a reason that they don't share their ideas. And I think that, obviously, people coming together and sharing their ideas and opinions on something is fundamental to how humans learn and inter interact with each other. And it's, it's sort of alarming me that students aren't having these conversations anymore. And I think that a lot of this is tied into socio-emotional learning uh, at a much more like macro scale.
Um, but on the on the micro scale, it has really been the rise in hospitalizations that has caused me to say that we have a socio-emotional epidemic in our schools. Uh, my school is is had has seen its fair share, um, the schools and the surrounding communities, but this is something that is seen throughout the country. You know, a lot of people are blaming social media. I would say that social media is more of a uh, pouring alcohol on a fire kind of situation with regards to social-emotional learning. Um, I, I have hope that so, uh, social media will come out in the end and actually help us grow as a human species uh, because I believe that it takes what's in our minds and puts it outward. It's allowed us to look at ourselves in a lot from a different lens. And I think that eventually when we start using it in a little bit more specific and practical ways, um, more meaningful ways, that it will really help us. Um, but I think it's really important to keep in mind that kids meet different developmental milestones at widely varied times uh, throughout their development as people, and that socio-emotional elements of development are fundamental to uh, the success of a student. And in a lot of cases, I would say that you can single out socio-emotional issues as being the number one reason why a student isn't succeeding. I was uh, visiting a school recently, and I was looking, we were learning about their socio-emotional program there, and there was some data that showed a lot of the kids had the ability to do the things uh, from an intellectual point of view, but they were choosing not to for different reasons or struggling to do it for different reasons, all of which were socio-emotional. Um, if you've worked with middle school students, you know that they grow uh, at a rate that is similar to toddlers, both physically and cognitively. It's a point of great opportunity, but also a potential source of stress for children and their families. Uh, this kind of carries in through high school, especially if they don't build the skills that they need. And I think it's important to work to not only accommodate this time period of growth for students, but also utilize it for amplified benefits through a socio-emotional focus. We know a lot about what certain cognitive and social skills uh, different students are at at different times, and specifically with middle schoolers, um, which has been a focus of mine in the past, uh, these are students that are starting to question concepts of power and influence and no longer take things at face value. They think more about how current events affect their futures and are beginning to develop a worldview with a basic set of values as a result. Um, their thinking is becoming more flexible and they're more open to change, but it's also a time where we're putting more, more structures on them and putting them more into boxes, leaning towards, uh, he heading towards high school. Um, there, there's a lot of other elements in the sense that they are more likely to bow to peer pressure and have experiences with bullying. This makes it so very crucial that we are working to develop a proactive and compassionate culture of empathy in our classrooms, and that we teach students how to deal with and manage these stressors. Uh, and these are just a few things. They're, they're learning to develop a deeper sense of pride for their accomplishments and an awareness to the challenges of the world. And herein lies an important value towards developing the culture that I've suggested in the past with regards to civic engagement, uh, but also in speaking to uh, globalization and diversity in our schools. It is, time, it is time of major internal and external growth that may lead many kids to struggle with individualism and the need to fit in with others. Their peers' opinions begin to matter more than, their, than parents, and uh, this can cause a lot of, of chaos in a child's life. As a result, schools need to be specifically supportive and collaborate with students to develop these needs. Um, something else I like to talk a lot about uh, is the 21st century standards. 
which I easily throw into being the three R's and four C's, which also connect to um, creativity. So, I mean, essentially, with regards to education, I think the answer is to not tell students what to think, but rather to show them how to think and how to feel. As educators, uh, we have the opportunity to help students develop a more sophisticated understanding of truth by exploring how these norms are created and reinforced. Uh, empowering through diversity of the individual uh, and the community through the vehicle of a relevant and interdisciplinary understanding of truth, students can become critical consumers of inquiry and curiosity and then construct their own responses, their own arguments, their own goals uh, for their education creatively with greater skill and intention. And uh, for, for this, I look at the new three R's, which suggest are, are suggestive of relevance, relationships, and rigor. Uh, you might be familiar with the old three R's, reading, uh, writing, and arithmetic. Um, but relevance, relationships, and rigor is, is where I believe that we need to focus. Also, the four C's, which are creativity, critical literacy analysis, cross-cultural communication, and cross-cultural collaboration. Um, rigor is most likely the most misunderstood. And basically, what I would say is most things worth doing are not easy, but we cannot simply define rigor by how much homework a student does or how many tests she takes. Rigor is about working hard for something you believe in, and it involves meaningful perseverance, not just stress, right? Throwing more homework on students as, as we touch back on the, the rant from, from my student prior. Uh, the next R is relevance, uh, which is this is the work that must come from the students themselves, and it reflects their lives because when the work is practical and relates to what children see in their worlds, they find more meaning and purpose in their work, and they're much more likely to do a good job to take it seriously, and to retain the information that they're gaining from their own journey. The third R is relationships, which touches again on a lot of the elements I've been talking about, creativity and socio-emotional learning. Uh, essentially, we learn from each other more than we do from a textbook. Shocker. The experiences that have led my own personal growth have been from the relationships I have formed with others. In the least, our globalized society demands that we are better at building and forging relationships. Learning and creativity are collaborative processes. They're not isolated, and this R gets to that point. The first of the four Cs is creativity. Creativity is among the top three skills needed for the future economy, yet most students, as I've mentioned, encounter, uh, I encounter have never purposefully learned about it. It's a concept I revel in and consider a top priority in my curriculum development, and it highlights the derivative, collaborative nature, and transformative power of the creation process. Critical literacy analysis uh, is not about the information itself anymore, as I mentioned before. All of the information you could ever want, as I said, fits in the pocket of your uh, back pocket of your genes. It's now all about information acquisition, understanding literacy from multiple points of perspective and how that information came to exist in the first place. Our children are products of the digital revolution, all of its wonders and its issues. Literacy is far from the uh, is far from is far from more than just being about reading or writing in today's world. And then cross-cultural communication and collaboration. Essentially, the world is connected, and it's high, it's highly likely your child, uh, any student in today's classroom, will work daily with people from around the world in their careers. 
New technology makes it possible to ideate with a partner overseas in real time. It is also likely that your child will hold multiple roles within a career and often shift career focuses with ever-changing needs. These skills are essential for a truly adaptive person to thrive. So after going through a lot of what I think is some of my philosophies and goals, um, I'd like to talk about some very specific, tangible, concrete things I'd like to do with this podcast in the remaining few minutes of what we have here, what I have here with you. Um, some of the episodes will likely be in a monologue form, just me, a computer, and a microphone, just like this one. I'm expecting to interview a number of teachers uh, and some students, and I'm hoping uh, to get uh, a number of administrators as well, maybe even some parents. I'm also hoping that an old student of mine will join in as a frequent contributor uh, because I think a lot of the work that she's doing in her perspective would be really helpful to this podcast moving forward. As I've mentioned a number of times, concepts of creativity and its relationship with learning and brain development will be a common theme. It's my opinion that a lack of it is largely to blame for the stagnation of American basically everything, American everything. The source of so many issues in our society, from cultural divides to economic inequalities, political compassion and comprehension, and definitely a lack of educational success, which is why I will be bringing it up numerous times. Uh, but here are some of the other episodes that I'd like to tackle in the future. I'd like to do a cliff notes on education history uh, with, while pointing out things that I think are of particular interest to education innovation. Um, we'll talk about, again, creativity. Uh, we'll talk about failure uh, as being something that is essential to learning. I want to have an episode about um, equity and a failure, how a failure in equity leads to a failing system. As I mentioned, I want to interview some students. I want to interview some teachers. I want to interview some administrators. Um, I'm going to have more podcasts on why socio-emotional learning matters and what we can do about it. And I want to get meta with these things. I want to really get to details and get to practical things. This episode is more of a summary, which is why it was a little bit of an overview and didn't really talk about actual classroom procedures or structures that I think need to exist in order to make education more successful. Um, I want to have an episode that focuses on listening and communicating in an age of divisiveness, why student voice is paramount, um, an episode about uh, facts about art education, um, there are two things that I think are the quickest ways to reform or turn around a school uh, or a community, a learning community. And uh, one of them is art education. I think that this is supported in, in the research, uh, a lot of research I'd like to share there. The other is mentorship and coaching. I think that that's one of the quickest uh, and most efficient ways to turn around a school is to bring more mentorship and coaching. And therefore, that will be uh, also a focus of an episode. What uh, I want to have an episode about what does progressive education look like, and I would like that episode to go into the school reform movement, which focuses a lot on charter. So, and this would probably be a multiple parter episode, uh, looking at public versus charter, and then other options like community schools, which uh, I think are are really wonderful, and look at bigger picture of what education is about and touch upon touch upon uh, social constructivism, which is a passion of my own. I want to have an episode about schedules and the structure of learning. Uh, I think a big issue in our schools is that students wake up too darn early, and that's just the beginning. 
Um, so that will be an episode. I would like to look at budgets as much as I hate uh, money and talking about money. Uh, finance, school finance is really pivotal to how we're going to make a difference in schools. Um, I'd like to have an episode about leadership and education. Uh, probably that'll come up throughout. Um, and uh, I want to have an episode about the status quo and why change is so hard which would obviously be a good partner to our talks on creativity. But I'd like to get specific into what are the roadblocks in the way of making the changes that we would like to see. Um, Again, a big reason why I started this is I feel that I've consumed a lot of literature, a lot of media about what's wrong with education. And I've just noticed a failure to provide tangible, concrete, uh, personal and practical stories on how to actually change those systems, on on how people have been successful in changing the systems. So I'd like to do a lot of work in looking at what has worked, why is change so hard, and what can we do about it? How can we meet this challenge that so many of us face today? Uh, what are the roadblocks in your community, school community that get in the way of change, and what how can we identify them and go about Uh, remedying them. Some of these episodes might end up being combined and some might be part of an interview. I'm not sure yet, but uh, I have definitely taken too much of your time already today. And so at this point, I would just like to say thank you uh, and leave you with the question of, hey, teachers, what can we do about education? What can you do about education? How can you be the change that you hope to see in the world? Thanks for listening and look out for episode two.